Hey, um, today's message I've titled Upside Down. It'll be obvious in a moment, but as I was preparing this, I was thinking it actually fits well as part three of a series that I've spread out over about a year uh, called Perspective. So I'm kind of taking that approach to it this morning, and I'll, I'll explain that in just a moment. But here's, uh, here's part of the thought process as I was going through. Anybody remember back in the 1970s when we had inversion boots? Remember that? Inversion? Four of you. That's, that's great. You're in. All right, so here's, so you hook these things, you strap them to your ankles, and you hang upside down from a chin-up bar, and you do your exercises that way, right? So uh, they were popularized back there in the 70s by uh, a movie called American Gigolo, where a young buff Richard Gere is working out, doing sit-ups and all kinds of stuff. They didn't last very long. They found out soon that it destroyed your hips and your knees uh, in doing it, so they didn't last. But before they they discovered that, the U.S. Army thought this was a wonderful idea for training recruits. So I'm serious. This is what they were doing for a while. I I remember trying it back there in the 70s, and it did something to my head I've never recovered from, I think. Just hanging upside down like that, it's not good for you. But here's the thing. This is a secret. It's a, it's a tightly held secret. Most of the people who were exercising like this a lot back in the 70s are now running the U.S. government. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that was a really cheap shot, uh, and I apologize for it. But I do want to make a point from that. We're going to be looking at a story of Jesus interacting with some Pharisees in just a moment in Matthew chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you might want to flip there. But what, what, the point that I want to make is that some of those Pharisees spent way too much time looking at God upside down. And in this story, he's going to take that upside down view and he's going to flip it to right side up. And it is truly amazing. The reason why I'm saying I think it's part of this perspective series is because that's what Jesus is doing. He's shifting their perspective. I'm convinced that perspective is hard to get and easy to lose. It's like trying to hold water in your hands. You know, you cup your hands, you scoop up some water, and within a minute or so, it's all slipped through your fingers. It's gone. And a lot of times, perspective is like that for us. I'm also convinced that one of the greatest gifts you can ever give anyone is the gift of words that create a transforming shift of perspective for them. We're in a moment with just a word, the right time, the right phrasing, and suddenly their eyes are opened to see that something they had held on to as a truth is suddenly not true at all. In fact, oftentimes its reverse is what's true. They just didn't see it as it was. Some of the Pharisees were struggling with this very thing. Jesus, we see over and over again, is a master of perspective. He just he he was he was able to do that. Read through the read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven. You see it again and again. He'll say, "You read the scripture and you understood it to be this, but I'm telling you, it's this." And it's like he would flip it upside down, and suddenly they would go, "Oh yeah, why didn't I see that?" Jesus is a master of perspective. And uh, I'm convinced of this as well. If Jesus did anything in addition to purchasing our salvation on the cross here on this planet, he brought heaven's perspective to earth. And if we will take some time 
to try to see through the eyes of Jesus, it will change how we understand things. The biblical word for perspective is wisdom, which is seeing things through the eyes of God. That's what we want to try to have happen this morning. So go with me to this, this awesome story in Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, and some translations indicate that it was the same night uh, as verse 9, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Just hold it right there for a second. If, if you're reading from a different translation, it's really fun to see what some others say. That word sinners, it's in quotation marks here. For example, New Living Translation says uh, scum. Why is, why, is, why is your master hang out with such scum? The message translation, which you know I love, uh, calls them uh, crooks and riffraff. I mean, that captures the idea here. They're, they're just saying, what in the world? Verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting the scripture there. And then Jesus is concluding by saying, For I have not come to call the righteous, that is, those who think of themselves as righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Wow. I want to talk to you about four ways Jesus turned things upside down from this passage. Before I go there, can I just make a confession that, and I'll talk about this more later. After more than 20 years of being a, a lead pastor and preaching every week, I went through a process that created a shift, a transformational shift in my thinking. And that's the root of what I'm talking about here this morning. I thought I knew God, I knew Jesus, I understood the Bible, and discovered that I had missed it on some key points. And I hope this morning you'll come here with an open heart. I mean, you may already be there thinking you got it all figured out. You know church, you know God, you know Jesus, you know the Bible. I just want to say to you, why don't you for a moment just ask Jesus if he has something new to show you this morning? You might be surprised. So let's go to the first one of these things. First, Jesus turned Matthew's world upside down. It's hard to overstate what this is all about when you take a look at the story. So Jesus is walking down a road. He sees a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth and says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. For some people, the magic in the story is they they imagine this to have all happened like Um, in a moment's time. You know, one day Jesus is walking along, had never seen Matthew before. Matthew had no idea who Jesus was. They, you know, their eyes locked, and Jesus said, follow me, and he did, and, you know, everybody lived happily ever ever after. You know, that's, I don't think a lot of scholars, remember this, John said, you know, if, if we were to write down everything Jesus said and did while he was on this earth, there's not enough room on the planet to hold all the books. So bear with me. I think there's a little bit more you can read between the lines here. And what I personally suspect is that Matthew probably was on the periphery of the crowds for a while. Remember, we're in chapter 9 here. 
earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus has already called Peter, James, and John, some of the other disciples, but there's a lag in time before Matthew is called. I think it's because Jesus had this understanding. He wasn't ready earlier, but he, may, he perhaps saw him first on the edges of the crowd and then coming in a little bit more closely to see if his eyes were telling him the truth, what he thought he was seeing, the miracles, that his ears were hearing what Jesus was saying because those words were so insightful and so penetrating and so powerful. And I think something started to happen, and Jesus began to observe this guy until the day came when he knew Matthew was ready, walking by, and he said to him, and this took place in an instant, follow me, and Matthew got up. And he followed him. About two and a half years ago, Jason and I were having a conversation. We hadn't met. Uh, We'd been introduced to each other uh, by Dr. Roden. And uh, so we were exploring the possibilities of working together. Uh, During that time, a period of a few months, Joan and I made a trip down here. And uh, and then at a later time, I came back again. And and we went through a, a rather rigorous process of just trying to figure out, is this God and is it the right thing for the church and for us? Um, I was at the stage of life where I, w- I want, want to move around just for the sake of moving around anymore. It's like, hey, we're gonna, let's go and plan ourselves where we're going to be. There came a point when we both knew there was time to make a decision. And, Jason, I remember you calling me, and, and in, the, in that conversation you said to me, do you have any more questions? And my response was, I got a lot more questions, but I can't think of a single one that would change my decision right now. And he said, I feel the same way. He gave me an invitation. We accepted. It was, and I think this kind of what happened here with Matthew. There was a process that preceded. The real miracle here in my view is Jesus is looking at a guy that everybody in the community knew to be a shameful sinner. I mean, he was disgusting in their eyes. And Jesus saw something in him that nobody else saw. He saw a guy who with the potential for a heart for God. He saw a guy who could become a world changer. He saw a guy who had something going on inside of him that wasn't evident to the, on the exterior. Jesus saw something in him. I mean, when you, when you just understand what the whole thing of tax collector was in that day, the, the, the biblical phrase is tax collector and sinners, but you can almost interpret that sinful tax collectors. I mean, just like those, that adjective was inseparable from the word tax collector in the view of those people, and, the, and for good reason. When the Romans, I mean, you, you understand that Israel was under uh, occupation by Romans at that time, and they had a, a, a very rigorous tax system, and part of that was they would recruit national people as the, the ones that collect taxes from their own, from their own neighbors and, and, and their friends. And so they sold it literally to the highest bidder. Whoever would promise the Roman government the, the best rate, that's, they would get it. And then they were legally allowed to, to charge any amount they wanted to and keep anything that they could over and above what they had agreed with the government to keep. So you can imagine how how despised they were. I mean, they were viewed as traitors of their own people, and they were willing to sell out simply for the greed of all of that. And then they were grouped with a bad bunch of people, and so that became the only people in society they could hang out with that would spend any time with them. And so that became their whole culture and their lifestyle, literally the riffraff. They hung out with the crooks and other people that were very, very disrespected in their time. It's hard to recover from that. You take on an identity. 
when you get there. You begin to think of yourself as that person. Jesus saw something entirely different when he looked at Matthew. I mean, think of it this way. Um, it says tax collector's booth. So Matthew was somewhat of a customs official as well. The reason why is because he was positioned on this main route um, and the traffic there was commercial from the Far East to Egypt and back. So they would bring goods from Far East right down through there alongside the Sea of Galilee, close to Capernaum where the story takes place, and then on down to Egypt. They would sell their goods. They would restock with Egyptian goods, and they would take it back the opposite direction, sell them there, and they made their livelihood this way. So the, the task of people like Matthew is to stop every caravan, assess the cargo that they have, and tax them accordingly. Well, it was all about all the commerce in that area, not just people who are, you know, have a donkey full of goods to sell. Even the fishermen were taxed. It was, it was Peter, James, and John, as we know, were commercial fishermen. So there's no way they could have escaped knowing who Matthew was and what that's all about. Can you imagine the day... When Jesus said to Matthew, come follow me, Peter, James, and John are already disciples, right? I mean, I picture them looking at each other and going, you have got to be kidding. How, how could he do that? Why would he pick Matthew of all people? This guy is going to take him down. He's got the worst reputation in town. There's no way he's going to be able to survive this. That, that's the level of what was going on here. I... I dare say that their initial reaction was not a positive one. Oh, goody, Matthew's going to be joining us now. Anything but. They disrespected him, and for good reason. You know, one of the things I like so much about this story is that Matthew's writing about Matthew. See that name twice in that verse? He saw a a man named Matthew And he told him, and Matthew got up, Matthew. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, carry the story. Mark and Luke are kinder to Matthew. They give him a different name, Levi, son of Alphaeus. Kind of like they're they're giving him a little bit of cover. They don't want to expose him for who he is. Matthew's writing about himself, and he names himself in the story. He's owning his own shameful past. He's saying, I was that man. That was me sitting there. I deserved the reputation that I had. And I don't know how or why, but Jesus saw something in me I couldn't see in myself. And nobody else saw in me. It turned his world upside down. You can go back to fishing, right? They, they did. You can be a fisherman and leave. You can go back to fishing again. You don't leave being a tax collector and go back. That's like being in a mafia, you know. You're not welcome back once you leave that. Somebody else is going to take that job. You're done. It changed his life. It cha- I love what Rick Warren says. God's more interested in your future than he is your past. And that was certainly true of Matthew. I mean, if Jesus had only looked at Matthew's past, there's no way this story would ever be in Scripture. But he was looking at his future and what he had in mind for him. Turned his world upside down. Let's move on to the next one. Second way Jesus turned things upside down, he turned the religious value system upside down. I mean, we read that over and over again in the New Testament. This is just a great illustration of it. Let's look again at uh, verses 10 and 11. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, 
many tax collectors and sinners. I mean, this was all his buds, right? These are the only people that would show up. I mean, it's almost, it's almost as if Matthew is saying to them, listen, I don't know if you're going to go the same direction that I'm going as a Christ follower, but I at least want you to know the truth about me. This is the guy I'm following. I want you to listen to what he has to say because this is my new life. So he invites them all to dinner. They came. They ate with him and his disciples. Somehow some Pharisees showed up in the process. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and scum, basically, riffraff? Why did, I mean, their perception was this. If Jesus can't figure out what's going on here, there's no way he can be a respectable religious leader. They, they expected him to choose his followers, his disciples. I mean, it wasn't unusual to be a rabbi and to have followers in that day, but they expected him to choose those people from the social and religious elite. That's how you built your reputation, your following. That's how you... You, you, you got the credibility that you wanted so that your name would spread and people actually listen to what you have to say. Jesus did exactly the opposite of what they expected. The, why? I mean, he doesn't even qualify as, as a legitimate religious leader based on the simple fact he's hanging out with Matthew and his ilk. How can that be? I'm about to tell you what's going to be for me the most painful thing I'm going to say this morning, but I'm going to give you permission when you see the word Pharisee in the scripture to think about me. At least I hope the, pre, the former me. Because I think a lot of times we, we get angry and upset with the Pharisees in the scripture and we paint a picture of them that's not entirely accurate. Let me tell you how it happened for me. I grew up Christian home, went to church from the time I was an infant. Sunday school, learned the lessons. I was a good kid. I, from an early age, I was a rule keeper. I did what I was told to do, never gave my parents a real hard time. Um, there were a few years back in junior high when some teachers wanted to kill me. While I was growing into my identity, I did some crazy things. I'll never forget the day the science teacher planted a chalk eraser on my left ear and filled it up with chalk dust. She was so irritated with me. But uh, apart from that, <laughs> I pretty much behaved myself. Went from high school into Bible college, prepared for ministry. Um, I, I spent a lot of time studying the Scripture. I wanted to understand what it was saying. And, uh, and I had a heart to live it out. I wanted to be good. I wanted to model uh, biblical behaviors and, and, and uh, practical holiness to my kids and to the churches that I served. I, I wanted to be that good person. Let me tell you where this, and that's pretty much the, the story behind these guys. The intent is good, but the result gets skewed. And let me tell you where it goes bad. It goes bad when you start to see yourself as better than other people. Okay? I made myself to be, I made choices that made me a better person than you because of the bad choices you made. And you start to look at people through that lens. It's called self-righteousness. And then you've got an image to live up to. So when you don't live up to it, you hide that fact from everybody and you turn yourself into a hypocrite. And the worst part of it is you become judgmental 
other, other people and you look down on them. I, I confess to my small group when we were doing men's fraternity that I actually did this with my own kids. I can remember times when I withheld affection from my kids because they didn't behave the way I wanted them to. Worst regret of my life. I'd do anything to take those days back and show them instead there wasn't anything they could do that would take my love from them. Because that's the love God shows to us. And I apologize to anybody here who's been hurt by other Christians like me. I mean, professional Christians in the ministry, preaching the word, trying to lead people in these spiritual things. That's where these guys were. Their intentions at some level were good. I mean, they were respected people in the community for the most part because they had all these rules that they kept. Literally, they had 613 rules. You can look them up. And every day their goal was to check every box that they did all of those things. Problem is, they failed miserably because nobody can live up to that. And so then they just became fakers. And Jesus is trying to help them to see that somewhere along the lines, though they thought they knew God, though they thought they knew the Scripture, though they thought they knew what serving God was all about, they were way, way, way off track. He turns the religious value system upside down. Can I take just a couple minutes and share with you two other passages in the book of Luke that help to illustrate this? The first one, um, there's a long story that starts in verse 36 and I think goes to verse 50. I'm just going to read the first two verses of it and then make some comments. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and this, this is a great reversal right here because remember the other story, it's the sinners that are inviting Jesus to dinner, and he went, right? And he reclined with them, and apparently he was having a good time. So everybody's looking at him going, oh, he's just approving. He's, he, he's just condoning those behaviors. Now it's the other way around. The Pharisees are inviting Jesus to dinner. And he goes to the Pharisee's house and reclines at the table, which was their custom. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. In other words, a beautiful flask of very expensive perfume. All right, let me just tell a little bit of this story because it's, it's a fascinating one. So Jesus is picking up on the vibes of the Pharisee in whose house he was a guest, Simon, and he knows what's going through this guy's mind. He's thinking this can't possibly be a legitimate spiritual leader because look at well, look what's happening right now. It's pretty obvious. So Jesus said to him, Simon, I got I got something I got to say to you. Simon said, Sure, go ahead. He said, uh, There was this guy who had some some means, and uh, two friends came to him and asked for money. And so he gave them each a loan. One was sizable, 500 denarii. That's, that's 500 days' wages. In our culture, you say two years of your wages, okay? You're going to loan to a friend. The other guy got 50 denarii, about a tenth of what the first one did. And uh, Jesus went on with the story. So um, as it turned out, neither one of these guys could repay the debt. They spent the money. It was gone. They had no way to repay him. So... The kind-hearted gentleman just forgave the debts of both of them. Which one of those guys do you think appreciated him the most? And Simon just sort of grudgingly goes, well, I guess the guy that got the bigger amount. Exactly right. He says, Simon, let me, let me bring this home to you. 
you invited me here as a guest of your house. When I walked through the door of your home, you didn't offer any water to cleanse my dusty feet. That was customary in that day. Everybody walked everywhere. They wore sandals. So, I mean, you just did that. He said, but this woman literally washed my feet with her tears and then dried them, my feet, with her hair. He said, when I came in the door of your house, you didn't give me the customary greeting of a kiss on the cheek. But as you can see, this woman can't stop kissing my feet, my dusty feet. And he said, you didn't anoint my head with oil. I mean, they would, they would pour a few drops of oil. It was a way of honoring that guest. You didn't put any oil on my head. But she just keeps washing my feet with this expensive perfume. And you see, Simon, the point is, she's committed a lot of sins. She's not trying to hide that fact. Everybody knows it, but she's forgiven because she came clean with acknowledging her sinfulness. I, I think this morning we got to ask ourselves, which one of those characters do we want to be, Simon or the sinful woman? You know, where, where are we going to be? Do we, do we want to keep up the image and the pretense that we're doing good and everything's all right? Or are we all okay with being that person that just so desperately needs Jesus that overflow with gratitude to him? Let's take a look at one of the passages, so Luke chapter 11. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him. Here's again, another Pharisee invites him to dinner. So he went in and reclined at the table. This Pharisee is not named in the story. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. It's a setup, folks. Jesus did that intentionally because he wanted to provoke the response that he got. Okay? So he decides, all right, Let's get this out on the table so we can talk about it. So rather than going through this religion, it wasn't about hygiene or cleanliness. It was a ritual, a religious ritual they went through. It was a club kind of thing, you know. Hey, you know, you know we're buddies, you know, we do this stuff. And Jesus just decided, I'm not going to do that. He sits down. And they're getting ready to serve the meal, and this guy comes after him. I can't believe You wouldn't even do the washing. You come into my house, you you violate everything that I believe in. You know, you sit down there. And so Jesus went after. You got to read the story this afternoon, Luke chapter 11. It will amaze you. Jesus came out with all guns blazing on this guy. And ultimately, I'll just skip to what he says in verse 46 in this passage. He says, listen, you guys, you crush people with a load of religious rules and you don't lift one finger to help anybody. He turned the whole system upside down. He, he just reversed it. And what they thought was so important to, to God, turns out, was exactly what God did not want from them. So he turned that upside. He turned Matthew's world upside down. He turned the religious value system upside down. Third thing, he turned the definition of sinner upside down. And I love this part. Sinner means, literally, it means uh, missing the mark. But if you, if you try too hard to make an issue of that, it gets muddy on you. It just became sort of a g- generic term that was used in their society to describe people that messed up, that they did 
poorly in life, and, and they were like the tax collectors and other people like that. It's interesting when you look in the, uh, the Talmud uh, where, where they're describing, you know, giving the details on what a sinner is, they, they included in their herdsmen, you know, sheep and goats. Like, you can't trust those guys. Just stay away from them. It also had to do with, uh, with uh, uh, rolling dice. Some of you are in big trouble right now. And stuff like that. They, they, had, they had a list, literally a list of what a sinner was. But on hearing this, that is, why is Jesus eating with these sinners? Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He redefines sinner from somebody who's breaking the religious rules to somebody who has a disease that they cannot help uh, heal themselves from. And that's, that's the nature of it. The Pharisees thought, well, the, the way you cure your sinfulness is you work harder and you try to do better at keeping the rules. Jesus is going, that's total garbage. You cannot cure yourself from the sin disease. It's like a spiritual cancer of the heart. It's going to kill you. Your only hope is that the great physician comes and takes care of the problem for you. You need a doctor. That's a huge shift in view of what sin is all about. But it's so true for us. And sometimes we think it's about how good we are. I love what Jason says. On your best day, you're not going to be good enough. And on your worst day, you're not going to be bad enough to deserve God's mercy and his grace. But that's what he offers to us. It's what he does for us. It's not the healthy to need. In other words, it's not those who think they are okay that need my help. It's the people who know they have a problem that I'm here to help. Uh, several years ago, I went to my dermatologist and uh, just for a routine checkup, and he kept looking at a spot on my, my left cheek, and uh, ultimately he came back in the room, left, came back, and he said, that's a basal cell carcinoma, it's a cancer, and um, it's 100% curable, but I have to cut it out, and I've got to cut deep because I've got to get all the roots out. I have to know it's gone. So I said, let's do it. And uh, he, he took care of it. If you look, there's a thin scar from my left eye down across my cheek. He took quite a bit of flesh out of there. The next day, I went into work, and people thought I'd been in a car wreck. But uh, I felt better because I knew that that had been taken care of. And that's the kind of thing. When Jesus does surgery on us, he doesn't just take the cancer out of the heart. He takes the heart out and puts a new heart in its place. I mean, that's the whole of the gospel, and that's why we're talking about a transformational shift in perspective because our emotions and our thinking come from that, that seed of us, that, that heart, and God puts something new in its place. You think differently after Jesus has turned your world upside down by giving you a new heart. He's redefined sin to be something that you and I cannot fix for ourselves. We have to come to him and he does it for us. There's one final point that I want to make, and then the fourth one is that Jesus turned their understanding of God upside down. And that's kind of a summary of this whole passage, but I want to, I want to go a little further and, and take a look at verse 13 again. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. That phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is a quote from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. 
And it's not like Jesus is saying to them, um, sorry, guys, but there's this one verse that you don't quite understand in the Old Testament. He's telling them, you don't understand God. You don't understand the Scriptures, which was insulting to them because that was their profession. That's what they were all about. I mean, if anybody in the community knew God and knew what the Scripture said, they surely were the ones. And he's saying to them, let me just give you one example here. You know, go study it again in Hosea, and you'll see that what God wants from you is way different from what you're offering. It's not about the religious practices you go through. He wants the heart of you. Look up mercy. Look at that. And I mean, they knew what Hosea was all about. It was a brutal passage. You go and read it for yourself. I mean, he, basically he was saying to them, you are so confused about what, who God really is and what he wants from us. You are completely off track with this. They had only two choices. I mean, they could humble themselves and learn from him, or they could dig in their heels and resist him. And some went one direction and some went the other. But he's saying to them, listen, you need to know the heart and the mind of God. He, he redefined for them, turned upside down their view, actually right side up their view of who God really was. Can I just say to you, you're here this morning, if you think that God hates you, you got it wrong. I don't know where you got that view from, but a lot of people carry it around today. And I'm telling you, that's an upside-down view of God. It's not who he really is. Our whole culture kind of uh, helps to construct our belief system for us, and a lot of times we don't question it. We just accept it, and it seems like certain things validate that. And the way some Christians behave seems to add, throw fuel on the flames and make it even worse. I'm just telling you this morning, if, if, if you think church is only for the good people, Anthony said it last week, you've got a wrong view of that. It's not that at all. If you think that Jesus has no interest in your life whatsoever, you are entirely mistaken by that. He's got something good for you. I'd love to pray with you as we wrap up this morning. And as you bow your heads, would you just think about this? When Jesus was on the earth from time to time, he called people by name, like Matthew. Matthew, come follow me. And I'm just wondering if there's somebody here this morning, and you can almost hear Jesus calling your name this morning and saying, follow me, and you're ready for that. You're ready for a change in your life. You know that there's something inside that other people aren't seeing on the outside. And you're willing to let Jesus bring that into you, put a new heart into you, give you a new future. I'd love to pray with you. If you just slip up your hand and say, Pastor Steve, I want to I accept Christ into my heart this morning. I want to make him my Lord. And my, I want the future that he has planned for me. I want him to give me a new heart. I'm going to serve him. Just slip up your hand. Let me pray with you as we close this morning. Anybody here? I want to receive Christ in my life. Thank you. I see your hand. Anybody else? Today is the day God is going to do something in you that will change your future. Just pause for a second longer. Anybody else? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that in spite of our behaviors, you never turn your back on us. Thank you that when we're at our worst, you're still chasing us. 
Thank you that you see something in us that we could not even see in ourselves. And thank you, Lord, that you made it possible for us to receive a new life. Thank you for coming to this earth to tell us, speak the truth. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place, in our place, to take our sin, the penalty of our sin. Thank you for raising from the dead. Thank you for calling us into your family and into your kingdom. And Lord, today I pray that that work, that spiritual miracle of transformation would take place in the hearts of people who are reaching out to you. We rejoice in that and we thank you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Hey, if you raise your hand.